Well, it's that time of year again, that time once a year we set aside a day to celebrate the freedom that we all experience. It's kind of sad that it's only one day a year, but, you know, it's easy to think that we owe a great debt to the founding fathers, and in fact, we do. But the Bible says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And Jesus said, where, when, the, when the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so really, it's a religious holiday, if you think about it, because our freedom comes from God and from God alone. You know, just two days ago, this past Friday, Gallup came out with a new poll. And the question was asked, are you extremely proud of America? Only 39% said they were. So it makes me wonder, what about the other 60%? What are they thinking? You know, uh, I, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they said, you know, I'm not patriotic at all. I'm not patriotic. I don't, the flag doesn't mean anything to me. What is there to be proud of this country for? Well, I hope to answer that question today. And this isn't so much a political message. It's a spiritual message. You know, the Bible is actually a recorded history of founding fathers, the founding fathers of Israel, those men and women that God used to establish his people in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, we find those who were the founding fathers and, the, and, and mothers of the New Testament church. That's why in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find genealogies, because God is saying, I don't want you to forget what I did in the past. In order for you to know where to go in the future, you've got to know where I brought you from. Scriptures constantly refer to what God's done in the past using people he chose to accomplish his will and to bless his people. So I thought two days before the 4th of July is the perfect time to address today's topic. I'm going to be talking about the founding fathers of this country. You know, we can hear about the founding fathers in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but today we're going to hear from the founding fathers of this country. Everything you hear today can be verified and found in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And I want to remind us not only of our national heritage, but our spiritual heritage as well. I want to remind us of those who God used in the past to establish this country. And I want to address an issue that's caused great debate among Ameri Americans today and has adversely affected the church in countless ways. I want to look at the separation of church and state myth that we've been, that's been perpetrated on America. You know, all through the Bible, God encourages us, don't be deceived. Watch and pray. Even the elect can be deceived, the Bible says. And I think much of the church has been deceived by this myth called separation of church and state. You know, today Christianity is being attacked and efforts are being made to excise faith completely out of our culture, out of our society. And if you look around, it just seems like our country has lost its mind. Christians are being silenced, canceled, and marginalized at every turn. I read about a, a male teacher in high school got suspended from his job because he had a personal Bible in his desk. I read about a young girl in school that got expelled because she bowed her head and silently prayed over her meal. You can't even display a manger scene on public government property without an uproar. So years ago, 
there was an educator, a man named Roger Babson. And he was having lunch with the president of Argentina. And he asked the president of Argentina, he says, I've been wondering why it is that South America, with all of its natural resources, its mines of iron and copper and coal, silver and gold, great forests, rivers, and great waterfalls that rival Niagara. Why are they so far behind North America? And the president of Argentina thought for a moment, and he said this. He said, I believe it's because South America was settled by the Spanish who came to South America in search of gold. But North America was settled by the pilgrim fathers who went there in search of God. Clearly, America from the very beginning, has been a nation blessed by God. Our founding fathers delivered to us a system of government that has enjoyed unprecedented success. We are now the longest ongoing constitutional republic in human history. 247 years under the same constitution. 247 years under the same form of government. Now, to put that in perspective, in the last 200 years, France has had seven different governments. Italy has had 51. Not to mention the fact that nobody doubts that we have been the richest nation in the history of the world. So what was it that our founding fathers did that caused America to become the greatest nation on earth? It's very simple. They honored God and they pursued righteousness. Solomon said, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And yet, the America that we see today is nothing like the country our founding fathers dreamed of and eventually built. It's not even the country our grandparents grew up and lived in. Solomon also said, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice, but the wicked, when the wicked rule, the people groan. America is groaning today. And I think it began on June 25, 1962, over the issue of separation in church and state. The Supreme Court ruled by a vote of six to one to ban prayer from public school. And I don't want to focus on prayer in public school. I mean, it's hard enough to get people to pray in church. But it's more about the separation of church and state. For 170 consecutive years, prayer in public school was considered constitutional. And then the Warren Court discovered our 170-year-old mistake. That day, we as a nation expelled God, not only from our schools, but from our shores. That day, the American judicial system shook its fist in God's face. Even our newspapers told us God was dead, remember? And the character of our country has been in a free fall ever since, ever since. It's like that day a spiritual dam broke. And the most sweeping moral decline in the 247-year history of our nation has taken place since June 25, 1962. All this is happening while Christians are silently watching judges and politicians strip away our religious liberties. They tell us there can be no public expression of faith, no prayer in public school, no Bible reading in public universities, no Ten Commandments displayed in public buildings, and a thousand other restrictions. And we're seeing the eroding of religious liberty in America all under the guise of separation in church and state. And when you ask the politicians why they're restricting freedom of religion, we're told that's because that's what the Founding Fathers intended. Even though not one of the writers of the First Amendment, First Amendment ever mentioned the phrase separation of church and state. 
So today I'm going to examine the mindset of the early American patriots who established and who God used to establish this country. We can begin with Christopher Columbus. You ever ask yourself, why did he set sail for other lands? Everyone told him it was a death wish. Remember, they thought the earth was flat back then. The experts said of his day that it was certain death. His journal reads this. The Lord put it in my mind. I could feel his hand upon me. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter. There's no question in my mind that this is inspiration from the Holy Spirit. The gospel must still be preached in so many lands in such a short period of time. This is what compels me. Have you ever heard that before? Early on, the educational system was established in this new land. Every university had written statements in their student manuals outlining the requirements and expectations of their incoming students. Remember, can't pray in school, can't have a Bible. Harvard, founded in 1636, their student manual says, we want every student to be plainly instructed and to consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Therefore, to lay Christ as the only solid foundation of any knowledge and learning. Yale, founded 1701, Seeing that God is the giver of all wisdom, every student, in addition to your private prayer, will be expected to attend morning and evening prayer meetings. Princeton, founded in 1746, their student manual says, Cursed is all learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. This is public education at the very birth that it was established. 87 of the, two, 87 of the 270 founding fathers attended Princeton University. 87. Its president was a man named John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was a member of Congress. He signed the Declaration of Independence, and he was a pastor. As a matter of fact, up until the year 1900, there were only six universities in the entire nation that was led by somebody who wasn't a pastor. John Witherspoon wrote the first American translation of the Bible in 1791. He taught for nine years at Princeton from 1768 to 1776. He personally taught 200 students during his time at Princeton. One-third of those 200 students that Witherspoon taught became America's founding fathers. He personally trained one president, one vice president, three Supreme Court justices, 10 cabinet members, 12 governors, 21 senators, and 39 congressmen. All built on the philosophy he stated when he wrote, to be a friend of America, you must be a friend of Jesus Christ. Now, what about the founding fathers? The 270 men who signed the Declaration of Independence attended the the Constitutional Congress and participated in the writing of the Bill of Rights. What do you think they believed? What did they intend as they formed the Constitution? Were they trying to shield America from every and any, any and every Christian influence? Only 12 of the 270 founding fathers can be identified as non-Christians. Only 12. That leaves 258. Of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, 27 of them had seminary degrees. Including, included in the list of the founding fathers, you'll find the founder of the first Bible Society of America, the founder of the first American Tract Society, the founder of the American Sunday School Union, the author of the first American hymn book, theologians, pastors, and missionaries. So what did they say about the role of God in government? 
Patrick Henry wrote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Patrick's, uh, Patrick Henry's last final uh, will and testament, he writes in the last paragraph, I have now disposed all of my property and my family. There's one more thing I wish I could give them, and that, that is the Christian religion. If they had this and I had not given them one shilling, they would be rich indeed. But if they had not that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor. Jesus said it better than Patrick Henry. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? James Madison, known as the chief architect of the Constitution, he said, we have staked the whole future of America not on the power of government, far from it. The future of America is not in the Constitution. We've staked the future of all of our political institutions on the capacity of each and every one of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Thomas Jefferson, he's, cre he's credited with originating the phrase separation of church and state. When he authored the plan of education for the public school system in Washington, D.C., he included only two books in the curriculum, the Bible and Watts' hymnal. He once stated, the Bible is the cornerstone of American liberty. Just a glance at this book will make anyone a better citizen. John Adams was our second president of the United States. He said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Samuel Adams, known as the father of the American Revolution, he was the founder of the Sons of Liberty. He's the one that instigated and started the Boston Tea Party. He was asked, how do you maintain American liberty? How do we maintain what you guys established? And he said, educate our little boys and girls and lead them in the study and practice of the Christian faith and virtues. John Jay was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was also the second president of the American Bible Society. He said, providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is their duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for its rulers. I don't think that's happened. Governor Morris, he was the most active man at the Constitutional Convention. He spoke on the floor of the convention 173 times. He physically wrote the Constitution. It's in his own handwriting. And he has the final signature on the Constitution. Governor Morris said, in order to maintain a free, independent nation, religion is the only solid basis for good morals. Therefore, education should teach the precepts of religion and the duties of man toward God. George Washington, he was, he was the only president, he wasn't only the first president, he was the only president that was unanimously elected. And that happened twice. He said, anyone who takes religion away from politics is no American patriot. He also said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Do you think our kids in school ever hear this in history class? Noah Webster, he fought in the American Revolution. He was an active politician and he was a judge. He also wrote the first American dictionary. And not only the dictionary, but he wrote many of the textbooks in our public school system. He wrote... Uh, textbooks on, on subjects like history and science and astronomy. The Webster spelling book, if you can find one, was used in public schools for 150 years up until the year 1930. 
And if you can find one, you'll see that every blank space on every page is filled with Scripture. Webster wrote, the Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things from which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. The Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. Another place he wrote and said, all of the miseries and evil which men suffer from are conceived by neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. The man who weakens or destroys the divine authority of the Bible will be accessory to all public disorders which society is doomed to suffer. I don't know about you, but that sounds prophetic to me. We're living what, what Webster warned about. A man named James Wilson, he was the signer of the Constitution. He was the second most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He spoke 168 times. He's one of only six men who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He was an original justice on the Supreme Court. He was appointed by George Washington himself. In 1792, he, he authored the first legal commentary on the Constitution. He said this, Human law must rest its authority on the authority of that law which is divine. Far from being rival or enemies, religion and law are twin sisters. William Samuel Johnson, he was a signer of the Constitution, and he was the first president of Columbia University. He spoke at a graduation ceremony there, and he said, you this day have received a public education, the purpose whereof is to qualify you to better serve your creator and your country. Your first great duties are those you owe to heaven, your creator, and your redeemer. Fisher Ames, he was a founding father who offered the final wording for the First Amendment, the amendment that contains the, the, the phrase separation of church and state. He certainly knew and understood what was intended with that. It wasn't to protect the state from the church, it was to protect the church from the state. They came from a country where it was legally imposed upon them, the Church of England. They wanted to make sure that that didn't happen here. He knew what the intent of, was of separation of church and state, and he expressed concern over the fact that many books were being introduced into the public school system, and he was afraid the Bible would be pushed out. He said, why, why then, if these new books for children must be retained, as they should be, should not the Bible regain the place it once held as a school book? What would our country look like if the Bible was once again put in that place as a school book and taught? He stressed that the Bible should never be excluded from a classroom of public schools. The Bible didn't violate Fisher Ames' view of the First Amendment, and he wrote it. We all know Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin. He said, whoever will introduce into public affairs the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world. They introduced into public affairs the principles of Christianity, and they did change the world. They changed the world for 247 years. Benjamin Franklin was at the very first session of Congress. That session began with three hours of prayer. At the Constitutional Convention, after five and a half weeks of deadlock trying to write this document, trying to form this new nation, after five and a half weeks of deadlock, he said this as he stood up and addressed the crowd. He said, in the beginning of our conflict with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. 
Our prayers were heard and graciously answered. All of us engaged in this struggle must have observed frequent instances of providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I've lived a long time, and the longer I've lived, the more convincing proof I see that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in his sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall fare no better than the builders of Babylon. So that we never make this mistake again, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers, employing the assistance of heaven, be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. The delegates immediately called for a three-day recess. Not to go home, three days of prayer and fasting. And when they reconvened, they formed a document that's lasted for 247 years. Chaplains begin each day with prayer in the House and Senate to this very day. Literally, we could go on and on for the rest of the day with quotes. Uh, some of you are afraid I'm going to, but I'm not. There's plenty, of inf- there's plenty of information. Everything, like I said, today can be found and verified in the National Archives. But I want to close with two more short quotes. The first one is from a man named George Mason. He was called the father of the Bill of Rights. He said, Providence punishes national sins by national calamities. And I think we're looking around at a calamity in a lot of corners of the country. We can see God's blessing and God's favor at the same time. It's not all bad, but it's worse than it should be, and it's worse than it needs to be. Once people took their eyes off Jesus, once people stopped building the foundation of Scripture into our culture, we've been in this freefall, a moral malaise, where right seems wrong and wrong seems right. And notice that the real intention of so many people is to silence the church, to silence the Christians, to marginalize us. You know, there's people being persecuted and imprisoned because of their faith. I'm not going to go into the stories because we tend to get off on the topic that, that they took a stand on. But I'm more concerned about the fact that what happened to the liberty that the founding fathers secured for us by the grace of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit? What happened to that? Abraham Lincoln said, It's the duty of nations to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. It's evident from their writings that the founding fathers never intended and would never tolerate the separation we have embraced today. And much of our tolerance for the lack of freedom, religious freedom, is because we've been deceived. We've bought the lie that separation of church and state is built into our Constitution. It's not. We bought the lie that the Founding Fathers designed this country based on a lack of religious involvement, and they didn't. We've been told that the Founding Fathers wanted to keep religion out of our culture, and I, we just heard from them. It was the furthest thing from their intent. 
It's evident from the founding fathers, like I said, they never intended and would not tolerate being silenced or marginalized or persecuted. So what do we do about it? Nothing too deep and insightful here. What do we do about it? We get involved. We take a stand. We don't allow people to silence us, to embarrass us, or to shame us into silence. We get involved first by prayer. We all know the, the Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and will heal their land. We can't heal the land, but we know who can. And it's there for the offer is made for the asking. So for God's sake, let's ask. Let's pray. The next thing we can do to get involved is to tell our children and grandchildren what God has done in the past and the responsibility we have to honor him and obey him. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. and He's promised over and over and over, teach your children. They won't depart from it when they're older. Raise a child in the way that they should go, the way that they should go. Each child has a different path, but every path includes a walk with Christ. What we teach our children right now will become national policy two or three decades from now when those kids become our national leaders. Invest in the future now with our kids and our grandkids. Hold up a standard of righteousness to our children and grandchildren in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, and in our communities. And don't be silenced by those who want to silence you. You know, we've got to take a moral stand. We've got to take a stand on, on God's law, what's right and what's wrong. It's important how we do it, but we have to do it. We can't be as violent or as obnoxious as the people on the other side of some of these issues. We've got to speak the truth in love. We've got to walk and teach and talk like Jesus did. I love the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Because when all the religious bigots were chased away, and it was just Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery, he looked at her and he said, where are your accusers? And she said, sir, I have none. Then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. So he didn't condemn her, but he didn't condone her. He called it sin and told her to quit it. That's how we take a stand. That's how we become a voice in our culture, a voice that, that says, it sounds right, and they seem to be doing it the right way. Some people are called to be politically involved. They're called by God to get involved in the affairs of our city, our state, and our nation. Not many, but a few, and I really admire them because I couldn't do it. I admire those people that God calls to roll up their sleeves and fight in legislature what follows the, the teachings of Scripture. Some will be called to be politically involved. All of us can vote our conscience. I don't really vote for politicians. I vote for policies. And I vote for policies that line up with Scripture. And I don't care who does it. And I don't think God cares either because I don't think God is a Republican. 
I don't think he's a Democrat either. But listen, I can't stress this enough. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. We say that again. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. And bad policies only continue when good people keep silent. Let's heed the challenge found in the book of 2 Samuel. It says, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what's good in his sight. Remember, someone once said long ago, all that's required for evil to abound is for good people to do nothing. Let's pray. Father, as we take this time of year each year to celebrate the freedom that we enjoy, I pray, God, that you would remind us that that freedom comes from you, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That no true freedom can be found outside of a relationship with you, Jesus, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And then, Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a firm conviction of what you designed, what you designed this country to be and what part and role we play in it at this time in our history. Father, I pray that each of us would leave with a, a certainty that you are the one that established this country, that you are the one that gave us the freedom we celebrate. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.